You're listening to the College Connection from New England Public Radio. As part of Smith College's 2016 Presidential Colloquium, Thinking in Public in a Networked World, Gloria Steinem shared her insight on activism, from the roots of 1970s feminism to the digital world we live in today. I have to say that in this hall, I will always be an 18 or 19 or 20-year-old person. Uh, We used to have chapel once a week. You don't remember those days, but you had to be here at something like 8 in the morning. I was always in my pajamas with the slicker over it. Uh, That was one person who's still here with me. Tap dancing on this stage also at a rally day show was another person. So I don't know what's going to come out tonight. I mean... (laughs) Uh, But I thank you all so much for inviting me back to this place where I feel like one of those nested Russian dolls, you know? I think we all feel that way, right? We have our very young self inside us, a little older, a little older, but the beginning self, the true self in a way, is always still there. Um, And I thank you especially for the theme, uh, thinking in public in a networked world, the challenges and responsibilities of public discourse. I still call it talk, you know, I come from Toledo, you know, so (laughs) discourse is not a thing I say, okay. (laughs) Reflecting the common theme, thinking in public in a networked world. And I I marveled at that title because, in fact, uh, at the end of this talk, I'm going to tell you my only recent episode with being Twittered globally as a result of saying, of fucking up in public, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's not that important, okay? So I'm going to talk about other things first. Uh, And one is how much my being here and speaking in public, as you can see in this book about being on the road, is itself something that happened to me much later in life. First I was a dancer, then I was a writer, and what that means is you don't want to talk. So, It still happens to me that I lose all my saliva. Does that happen to you? Each tooth gets a little Angora sweater on it. (laughs) Because it has to do with nervousness about speaking in public. And if it had not been for the fact that in the beginning of the women's movement it seemed impossible to publish what I thought was exploding in the world, and the editors I had been working for said things like, well, yes, you could write an article about women being equal, but we would have to publish one right next to it saying they're not equal in order to be objective. (laughs) You can't make this stuff up. (laughs) So after enough of that, I finally asked uh, a dear friend of mine who was everything I was not. She was married, she had children, she ran a childcare center, she was African-American. You know, I thought, 
you know, the two, the two of us together, and most important, she was fearless and a great public speaker. And if it hadn't been for my inability to get something published, I wouldn't ever, ever, ever have dared to do the, what I'm doing right now. Uh, it ended up being a substantial portion of my life because what I discovered was and is that something happens when we are together in a room like this with all five senses that cannot happen on the printed page as much as I love books, that cannot happen on a screen, that only happens when we can exercise all of our senses and empathize with each other. It turns out that according to my neurologist friend, we only produce oxytocin the famous tend and befriend hormone, right, that allows us to not just understand and know, but to empathize with each other. We only produce oxytocin when we are together with all five senses. So for the last 40 years, I've had the gift of being in rooms like this, and the best part is not when it's a one-way street like now but when it is a two-way street and as much of a circle as possible. So I'm looking forward to uh, our time of talking in a little bit, and I hope you will feel free not just to ask questions, but to give us answers. We could all use some. To make organizing announcements of any upcoming you know, outrageous meeting or <laughs> that you think we should know about. <laughs> and hopefully to turn this into as much of a circle as we can. Because there are so many of us in meetings like this, we end up looking at each other's backs, me looking at you, this is a hierarchical structure, hierarchy is based on patriarchy, patriarchy doesn't work anywhere anymore. <laughs> Now, having said that, I do not want for a moment to neglect the miracle of our communicative ability of all of our uh, unheard of, when I was sitting in these seats, ability to cross boundaries, to find each other, to get information instantly, uh, to create community uh, you know, across worlds. It is absolutely crucial, magical, and irreplaceable. And I do not mean for a moment to underestimate how important that is. I just don't want us to give up on all five senses. I just want us to remember, you can't raise a baby on the web. <laughs> um, and to think about the limitations of technology as well as the miracle of, of technology. Yes, we can cross boundaries and distance, and we can get information and safety, which is often especially important for women in this world. Uh, incredible research, we can find allies. We, it, you know, it is all, it is all 
positive, very, very positive. But it is also true that we can't empathize, and that, I think, is part of the reason that we are able to be more negative and more hostile on the web than we would otherwise be. It's so important that we remember that. We remember that. It's also true that we um, cannot, um, we, we cannot connect in, a, in, in, the same, in the same way. Um, and we also must look for signs of addiction because we get addicted to sitting there and getting our information in, in that way. Uh, sometimes I think simple things would help. For instance, putting three dots after ever Twitter. Context. Wilma Mankeller always said context is everything. With those, with words we don't know, just three dots after a Twitter would, would help us. Um, it is not a haiku, it is a Twitter. <laughs> so uh, I think together tonight, perhaps we can think of ways of bridging this gap between technology and, and humanity. Um, I am so pleased that this era is seeing so much activism among young women. I can't begin, don't know what that was. <laughs> I can't begin to tell you how much more activist and aware this generation and more generations has become than when we began. Do not have too much respect for the past. We were like 12 crazy ladies. <laughs> and uh, quite naive and quite um, idealistic and everything that I hope is still with us. But still, we were a very, very small group. Now, this movement is the majority in this country. There is a changed consciousness now. Every single issue that we care about, whether it is reproductive freedom as a fundamental human right, whether it is the clear understanding that racism and sexism and class and caste are all intertwined. You cannot possibly uproot one without uprooting all of the others at the same time. After all, you can't maintain a division into the future unless you control reproduction, and that means controlling women's bodies. It is, I think we understand much better now how all of the movements that we love are connected. It made sense to, that they arose individually. That's what happens when you've been invisible. You rise up, you name yourself, you say, this is, these are my experiences, this is my story, everybody has to tell their story. And so movements have grown up in a time when declaring independence was absolutely crucial. I think now we have arrived at a time in which we can declare interdependence and see that all of our movements are absolutely connected. 
And that is very, very precious and very necessary, but it is not happening nearly enough. Whether it is on something very simple, like the fact that uh, when we talk about, equal, about economic stimulus, we have yet to talk about equal pay for women of all races and all groups, would be the greatest economic stimulus that we could possibly have. It's... It would put uh, something like $200 billion more into the economy every year. And those women are not going to put it in a Swiss bank account. No, they are going to spend it. <laughs> uh, it means that uh, there would be less of a burden on social services because the poorest children are in single parent households. And usually that means the female parent and there would be less need for social services that it is absolutely a win-win situation, perhaps for everybody except Walmart, <laughs> that is currently uh, consenting to pay $10 an hour to its employees. I think they started out at eight, didn't they? The employees wanted 15. The family is making $1,800,000 every hour. And the family is, has more money than, than the entire bottom third of the United States. And this is accumulated you know, because of unequal pay. Um, it's also true of everything related to violence. Uh, for instance, uh, the rate of domestic abuse in police forces across the country is four times that of the population at large. And we know that violence in the household is the root normalization of, uh, and, and patterning of violence everywhere else. If Trayvon Martin <clears throat> had not uh, met a man who had been habitually violent to women, he might still be alive. If we had allowed the evidence against Zimmerman of his violence against women into court, he might have been convicted. These things are connected, and yet we don't connect them. It is also true in a big global way because it happens that the biggest indicator of whether a country will be violent within itself, in its streets, or whether it will use violence uh, against military violence against another country, is actually not um, poverty or access to natural resources or religion or even degree of democracy, it's violence against females. Not because female life is any more important than male life or any more valuable, no but because it's what we tend to see first in our lives, violence control, because of the polarized roles of masculine and feminine, which are all about controlling reproduction, controlling women's bodies. Sometimes I think the whole world is divided into two, those who divide the world into two and those who don't. <laughs> uh, but those... Um, those roles normalize control and dominance and violence the earliest. 
and therefore make it seem okay that groups by ethnicity or race or any other measure are also considered to have been born one to dominate the other, and it does normalize violence. So, you know, it's, it's high time that we made the connections across and among movements and no longer looked at them as if they were in silos like this, which is still the way, for the most part, I know that this group is connecting them, but we, they are still not connected in the world as, as they should be. Um, I, um, let's see, do I have time to, hmm. <laughs> um, I, I thought that uh, I would also uh, be given, you know, I wasn't going to do this until I saw this wonderful title, Thinking in Public in a Networked World, um, but that I should also explain uh, that if I had said what people think I said, I would be mad at me too. <laughs> Um, but I think that when we speak out in a networked world, kind of very odd things can happen, right? So um, this, uh, <laughs> this is to say that uh, I, the, the famous uh, sentence, what was it, wait a minute, I wrote it down someplace, that... Um, when you're young, you go where the boys are and the boys are with Bernie. Okay, I would just like to explain that this um, was in response to a host who was belittling young women's activism. And I was assuring him that the host, I was assuring him that young women are very active and mad as hell about what's happening to them especially graduating in debt, as young men are too, but young women are averaging a million dollars less uh, over their work life to pay it back. And then I said, and also where the boys are, they think that's where, when you're young, you think that's where the power is, because it literally seems that, that and it takes longer to realize that if women act together, you can have power. But right at the end there, right in the middle, uh, he said, well, if I said that, you know, people would be very angry at me. And I'm sitting there saying, no, no, you know, and then I realize that he's made it sexual. And so and I say, well, but how well do you know me? And he says, not well enough. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. All right. <laughs> um, but the, and the irony was that he went on to, to, to uh, a larger Islamophobia. I don't, did any of you actually see the whole thing? Your class did? Oh, good, okay. To, uh, because <laughs> because the, the interesting thing is that when I, when I you know, went to the sort of gathering after the, the show, which was fine, you know, and then I, um, well, it was sort of, I have to say for myself, I would like to say for myself that I did get mad in the portion of the show that was only online um, because um, there, there was another woman on the show who I admired very much and I said, you know, how much I admired her. And it was Erin Brockovich, 
the great environmentalist, right? And we hadn't, we hadn't seen each other, um, we hadn't met each other before. So I was saying how glad I was to, see, to meet her and how much I admired her. And she was saying, I'm glad to meet you. And he said, why don't you two get a room? <laughs> so I said, I got mad and I said, you want to watch? <laughs> But the truth is, I only got mad on her behalf. Isn't it interesting that we can get mad on somebody else's behalf when we don't get mad on our own, right? Um, so, you know, I thought that nothing at all was amiss. And this is a function of uh, thinking in public in a networked world. I went home on the red eye. I got up in the morning, and I got a phone call from a friend in the feminist world who was saying, um, you must call this woman who is a reputation manager. <laughs> and I said, why? And she said, because it's all over the web. There's this Twitter that's all over the web. And it's going to lose the New Hampshire primary for Hillary. That's an incredible phone call to get up to in the morning, I have to say. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, <laughs> I, I realized that, you know, Hillary is kind of a, like the Bermuda Triangle from a press point of view. If you get next to her, it's, you know, incredible things happen. But I, I, I still couldn't quite believe uh, that this was, you know, going to have such impact. But it kept going and going and going because I was thinking in public in a networked world, right? It just kept on and on and on. And then it got combined with, a, with Madeleine Albright, who for 30 years has been saying there's a special place in hell for women who don't support other women. I have such empathy for her because what she meant by that is that she, she was then the U.S. representative to the U.N., and the idea was that no woman on top helped women on the bottom. And that's what she meant, you know. But this got interpreted uh, to, as meaning that we were trying to force women, especially young women, to support Hillary, or we were denigrating somehow young women if they didn't, you know. And I kept saying, saying, you know, that we're not voting on biology, you know, Sarah Palin, I just exhibit A, Sarah Palin. <laughs> <clears throat> and then I discovered um, that I was trending. Now, it's not the first time that I've trended. <laughs> but it's the first time that I've trended in a bad way. <laughs> Uh, and suddenly there were pieces in the New York Times and in the Washington Post, and uh, I, could, I could tell, you can sort of tell who your friends are because some people were standing up in Cosmo and, and the Chicago Trib and the New York Times and saying, no, you know, why, why you're wrong about what Gloria said and so on. But that was, you know, much smaller than the other stuff. And it became the reason for declaring a generation gap. Really. 
I mean, I could give you all these. That was the reason. 14 words, I would like to say. 14 words of an incomplete sentence were the reason for declaring a generation gap. Um, the only bright light was that because he had launched into his uh, Islamophobic uh, speech right afterwards, I got nice mail from Muslim women <laughs> saying, uh, thanking me for uh, supporting their agency and the fact that they were perfectly capable of speaking up for themselves, uh, and how delighted they were that I had said that Muhammad was a reformer in his time and his first wife was a real estate dealer who was smarter and richer than, <laughs> than he was. It's true, right? right. <laughs> but, um, but that was uh, as nothing compared to um, the, the fate of those 14 words, which probably you saw. However, I went to England uh, for a book tour uh, for a week, five cities. And in every city, it was exactly the same. Because now, it's exactly the same everywhere, right? And the world of Twitter was absolutely uh, without, without limits. Um, and th the... Um, the net result there was so severe that Emma Watson and I, who Emma Watson, a great young woman who has, whose book club now is the shared shelf, is introducing feminist books around the world, who's taken a year off, as you know, uh, to do work for the He For She initiative of the United Nations. And we uh, had a conversation together in a hall that was like four times as big as this, com completely packed with folks. And people were mad at her because she was talking to me because of 14 words. Right? Now, you know, this, I, I'm, I'm not exactly complaining because I think this happens to all of us in different ways. And you learn from your mistakes as they say, way more than you learn from what you do right. So I learned what it's like for a little bit of what it's like for a 14-year-old or 16-year-old who suddenly finds herself a photograph that she thought was private that is on the web or sentences of condemnation from you know, one person that suddenly seems to be her whole world. This is not a new thing. In my day, we had what was called personality books. Does anybody remember those? Pre-technology. They were secretarial handbooks with the name of one student in your class on each page. And then there were anonymous comments that you wrote, like, cute but knows it. <laughs> it was kind of the limits of our <laughs> But now, this can be found uh, everywhere, and you know, in in uh, in Manchester, not just London, Manchester, Bath, Cambridge, Oxford, all of it, all of it was exactly the same uh, because of this interrupted sentence. Now, the question is, what should we do about this? So I actually, um, 
I value the empathy that it has brought to me for what other people are experiencing. I think that's very important, and I'm very grateful for it. I did not uh, uh, employ the reputation rescuer. <laughs> I did listen to a media coach about how you are supposed to, you know, I've only been doing this for 40 years without a media coach. <laughs> But <clears throat> I, did, I did listen to her uh, about how it is that we are supposed to prepare, uh, and that means researching the uh, person who's interviewing you, having prepared sentences that you're going to say no matter what you're asked you, to get your point across. And if, if I were a, a political candidate, I absolutely, I, you know, I might well do this. If, if I had um, a job I could be fired from, which I don't. You know, every, every movement needs a few people who can't be fired. <laughs> um, I might have listened. But it seems to me that in addition to empathy, what this, what this brought to me is an understanding that the difference between movements and political campaigns or corporations is authenticity. And what that means is that when we are there unprepared, uh, making jokes on a late night comedy show, or trying to be serious on whatever it is that we are, we are doing, whatever it is that we are doing, we are going to fuck up. <laughs> and that's okay. And we have to... <laughs> we just have to be able to say we're sorry and move on. I don't think that the challenge of public discourse in a networked world uh, is technology, I think it's staying authentic. And that is not easy when all around you is, um, seems, feels accusatory, way, way more than anything I have experienced. It's not easy. But we must remember that the oxytocin is missing, that the empathy is missing, and so this is just going to happen, and we should value, it seems to me, spontaneity over reputation even, over legacy even, over, you know, just the ability to be our authentic selves in the moment is so valuable and so important that it is worth the struggle and the pain that comes in many ways from being misunderstood and thought to be someone you are not. <clears throat> so um, I hope that um, this, my belated lesson in life, you know, I mean, good that I'm learning it at 82, you know. So <laughs> I tell everybody my age because I'm so trying to convince myself that I'm 82. Right? <laughs> it's, um, 
it's very, it's not good to be, to think you're immortal. It causes you to plan poorly. <laughs> but, um, but I, I do hope that we um, only empathize, we, that we only remember how much we need to empathize with each other as we are now in this room with all the technology that has given us knowledge and insight and clarity that's so valuable, but that is not to be replaced by the fact that we are here breathing together, breathing the same air, able to uh, feel and sense the group we are in. We have not been sitting around campfires for, for over 100,000 years telling each other our stories for nothing. It is in our cellular memory that this is the way we communicate. This is the way we know what the other person is feeling. And ultimately, the way we know that we are linked and not ranked. I want that to be my legacy. Thank you.